When I was a boy and our family would go downtown, and um, I think that's one of the things that uh, kind of surprised me moving to the suburbs here. If you want to go downtown, people are talking usually about going to Detroit. But downtown, there was a courthouse square. There was, that's where all the businesses was at. That's where Sears and Roebuck was at. Does anybody remember Sears and Roebuck? Did y'all have those here? And uh, downtown was pretty special. And when we went downtown, we had to put on really nice clothes to go downtown because you just didn't walk around downtown in your dungarees or your old clothes. Now, if you went to Atlanta, or as we said growing up, Atlanta, if you went to Atlanta, you really had to dress up because you were going to Atlanta, and there were big things going. Of course, we always had to dress up for church. Our shoes had to be polished every Saturday night, and everything was laid out and ready to go. I have good memories of that, and there are times when I've told Becky, I said, I miss the fact, unless we go to Detroit, and that, you know, being able to take the kids downtown sometime occasionally, and everything happened there. Well, I thought about that when I was working on this passage that we're going to look at tonight from the book of 1 Peter as we continue, and Keith... I don't know where you're at, I just saw you, but thanks for your ministry last Wednesday night. Would you stand with me, and we're going to pick up where we left off. We'll only be able to get through three verses tonight, and I'm not sure we'll get through all three of them. But these three verses, if you're using the little outline Bibles that um, we made available to you, you may want to write down, these these three verses are pivotal verses. The whole book of 1 Peter pivots on these three verses. Everything that's come before and everything that comes after is kind of summed up, and then we're going to move ahead out of these three verses. So it's incumbent that I take enough time to walk through these three verses with you this evening. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. That's three three big mouthfuls right there. A chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. A people for his own possession. Now, that's another pregnant phrase, a people. The word genos there. Uh, This is, this, this is a, these verses are so full. In other words, you and I, that chosen people, that's what was used of Israel. Okay, so the church is deeply rooted in Israel. The church is deeply rooted in the history of Israel and all that came does it displace Israel, but the church is deeply rooted in Israel. So you're a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. There's another one right there. If once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Father, we're loving this book. We're loving what we've learned already about a life of holiness with which no man may see the Lord. A life of holiness that is not a legalistic life, but a free life, Lord, a loving life, a joyful life, a fruitful life. 
And so tonight as we look at these verses and the time that we have before us, I pray, Lord, for a deep witness of your Holy Spirit. And Father, you know, and some of the people in this room know, not everybody would know, but I don't like that phrase, deep. But I'm asking you to help us to go deeper in the things of God. I'm asking you to give us deepness of thought and deepness of spirit. Give us depth in our understanding, Lord. Not so that we may somehow or another feel spiritually superior to others, but so we may fulfill the role as a royal priesthood that you've called us to be. In Christ's name I pray. And everybody said, Amen. 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 God bless you. You may be seated. You may wonder why I prayed the way I prayed. I kind of had a reaction early on in ministry when people would talk about the deep things of God or we're into deeper things here or we're a deeper group of people. It was almost a spiritual elitism that was emerging in some people. And I don't know anything deeper that I got to where I would begin to say to people than Jesus loves me, this I know for the Bible tells me so. In trying to make things deep sometimes, people were making it esoteric and almost making the same mistake that cults made from time to time. I write ministry descriptions. I wrote them for our church. I wrote them for our board members. I wrote them for our staff. I wrote them for, with, in consultation and with pastors for different leaders in our church. I wrote them for our small group leaders along with Pastor Rick and, and his wife Norma. I help write ministry descriptions sometimes for people in district offices and in other churches. And sometimes I write job descriptions to help people with their jobs. Because I don't use the word job description here at the church because it's ministry, not to, not to, again, be esoteric, but to help people understand that what we do is serve. And really, with a job description in your company or the school, you're really serving. And so I think ministry is an apt and an excellent way to describe what a ministry description is. But a ministry description describes two things. It describes the character I must possess, but it also describes the duty, duty I must fulfill. And so, I don't know for the job that you have or that you've had, if there is a character requirement for that, but for a ministry description, there is a character requirement. There's a certain kind of character. Last night, Becky and I had dinner with a new couple attending our church and enjoyed it so much and really are growing fond of them. And they were asking me about Woodland and some things that they could participate in and some things they can't participate in yet until they become members. But I said, everything we have we'll give you freely. And then I said, if you come to Discovering Woodland, we'll talk even more about that and, and what membership means. But a part of that always is not just the duties because people often think about the duties without the character. Heinz and I have a friend that we've talked to from time to time that uh, is wanting to develop an academic curriculum for people with ethic and character. I just was talking to my son uh, just last week about the character of an officer. Does the character of the officer differ from the character of the enlisted man? And what is the enlisted man taught? And we had some interesting conversation on continuous courses that he has to take in ethics and things of that nature, which got us to talking about the ethics of warfare and the ethics of treating prisoners and enemy combatants. And 
We're fortunate to live in a country that that kind of ethic and character matters, that we hang our heads in shame, and rightfully so, over an Abu Ghraib and the, the atrocities that happened there because it was wrong. We, we still have shame over what happened in Europe and with what happened with the Jews and the Holocaust. And this week was the National Holocaust Remembrance Day for all the people who suffered there. There's a lot of things that I would like to take time to share about. Number one, a chosen race, that what that means. But we don't have time because I could take actually six weeks and I just outlined that you'll probably hear later on in the future a series of messages that I'm going to do right out of this. But you're a chosen race. God called us. No man comes to the Father unless the Holy Spirit draws him. But in this chosen race, it's important to remember that these people were primarily Jewish. We talked about that in the introduction to Peter. These were Jewish people. They would have understood this. Yes, the church is a part of Israel now. And again, it doesn't displace Israel and God's prophetic timeline according to Romans 9 and 10 for what God has for Israel. But it's important to understand that the church is the new Israel of God, not displacing Israel, but you and I have inherited those promises that Abraham had, and I'm grateful for that. We're a royal priesthood. I'm going to break that out a little more tonight than I would with the rest of these because when you think royal, and I took time Sunday morning in the second service to go into some detail about what lordship means because we really don't understand lordship in America the way some other countries understand lordship because we don't have a monarchy. But here, if you said royal, you were not just speaking about Israel. You were speaking about the line of David. You were speaking about the tribe of Judah. It wasn't Levi. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't uh, any of the other tribes. It was the tribe of Judah. So here you're seeing a royal, a kingly priesthood. And that's important for us to grasp hold of tonight, that we have we're now a member of this new Israel. We're a royal priesthood. And I, I'm, not a, I'm not of the priestly tribe. I, I'm sure that somewhere in my lineage that you could trace it all the way back to, to Adam. God will probably show us that. But I believe your father traced my family tree back because he loved doing that sort of stuff to the 1100s. And then he lost us, so somewhere in the 1100s, the Clantons came into being. We were blacksmiths. We were beating out swords and, and, and um, horseshoes and stuff like that. We weren't royalty like Becky's line of, of the Stuart line, as Becky's father was fond of reminding me. I would have been his blacksmith and probably could have never married his daughter. But there is a God in heaven. Somebody say amen. So that's an important thing. But you're a holy nation as well. A people for his own possession. And then I, I want to point out this other phrase before I just really dig into the royal priesthood tonight. Look at this. You have been called into his marvelous light. And everything about your new life in Christ is marvelous. Your sins being forgiven are marvelous. Your new life is marvelous. The fact that you're not going to die. Your body will die one day. And I may have the, I almost said the joy. That sounds bad. I may have the privilege of preaching your funeral one day. You know, it won't be joyful, I promise you. But I may have the privilege of preaching your funeral one day. Or you may have the joy of attending my funeral one day and saying, He's in heaven with Christ. 
It's a marvelous light. But I got to tell you something else. I'm, I'm looking at some of you that I've known for quite a while. And I got to tell you, just seeing what God has done in your life is marvelous. I mean, look in the mirror tonight and remember where you came from to where God brought you today. That's marvelous. We used to sing a song as a boy when I was growing up. Oh, how marvelous. Oh, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. Does anybody ever heard of that song? Few of you have. A lot of you have. Oh, how marvelous is my Savior's love for me. And I think we lose the marvel of what God has done in our lives. And Peter is bringing all this back to our remembrance tonight and especially to these people who are suffering so. And so I have to take just a little bit longer so you can understand this because Peter is going to write, remember it's a pivotal chapter, Peter is going to write some things that for you and I are going to be tough to deal with. He's going to talk to slaves and he's going to talk about persecution and he's trying to get them to see because, look at me, Becoming a Christian meant that some people lost their social status. Okay? And again, that hasn't affected us as much in America as it has in other countries in the world. And becoming a Christian not only lowered some people's social status, but it made life really difficult for some people whose spouses were not Christians. And Paul is going to tell Unbelieve, uh, the wives of unbelieving husbands, Peter is going to tell them how they should live with those unbelieving husbands. And then he's also going to tell believing husbands, you need to treat your wife better. Your prayers aren't going to be heard. Occasionally, there are people in this church that will tell you so. Becky and I have been out and I've seen the way a husband has treated his wife, spoken sarcastically to her, caustically to her, I pulled him aside later and said, look, I notice this. I love you. I'm your pastor. You may never like me again. You may not want me to be your pastor anymore. But I'm telling you, if you don't start loving your wife and treating her better, your prayers are going to be hindered. You see, there's sometimes some real challenges that come along with being the people of God. <laughs> Some of you know that in the places of business because you've worked in or maybe in school you were mocked when you gave your heart to Jesus Christ. But don't ever forget the marvel of the new life you have and the marvel of the life you're going to have in Christ. And the good news is this. If you will follow him even in this life, he will cause you to do well. Amen? So let's just take one of these tonight. And since we've talked about character and duties, let's talk about the ministry of a priest. Because that's the one that fascinates me the most tonight. That's absolutely the one that grabs my attention the most and just makes me wonder as I look at this that we're a royal priesthood. And talking about the ministry of the priest, look at this phrase from 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 4. You've come to him. Who have you come to? You've come to God. You've come to the, you've come to the highest. You've come to the apex. You have come to the center of all the universe, of all that ever has been, ever will be. Peter is saying, you've come to him now. It, it, it's, it's a nice thing. Tomorrow I have an all-day meeting with a, with a certain group of people. And in this meeting I'll be with, I'll be privileged to, to sit down and strategize and meet and plan. And with them, every one of those people that have invited me into this meeting have 
very heavy demands upon their life. They, they serve in elected positions. And I will meet with them that I would normally not get to meet with them. I am privileged to be able to be with those guys. I'm privileged to be invited in for the purpose that I'm there tomorrow. That is nothing compared to the privilege of being able to meet with the Lord. One man called me this week and says, Pastor, he said, I needed what you said Sunday morning because I have forgotten I don't know who I'm talking to when I get up to pray in the morning. And sometimes I have neglected to pray. And when you said those words Sunday morning, that you're too busy to pray because you don't know who you have the privilege of talking to. He said it was like smacking me across the face. Suddenly I realized I have forgotten the incredible privilege of being able to pray. And I hope that you've spent some time in prayer today. I hope you've spent some time worshiping and loving the Lord because that's a part of what we're called to do as a royal priesthood. When I would go downtown, I told you when I was younger, we had to dress up. Mom and dad didn't want us going in our country clothes that we had. They wanted us dressing up. And, and part of the reason that we dressed up was because People dressed up downtown. They showed their respect going into businesses. When I went to college, the college I went to, I had to wear a shirt and a tie to class every single day. I could take the shirt and tie off after class, but to class, I was taught how to dress up. When I went into ministry, my first church, my dad and I went out to buy my car, and, and I, even though I was buying the car, I picked out a car because I'd never had a car with air conditioning. I'd gone through high school. I went through college, and Dad says, son, you've got to have a car with an air conditioner because you can't get out of the hospital being all sweaty and sticky and go in to pray with sick people. And didn't have to argue with me long. I was happy to have an air conditioner. My daddy didn't have an air conditioner in his car. But the point of what I was doing, he understood that I needed to present myself. Well, a priest had to wear special garments and a priest had to wear special vestments. He couldn't come in his street clothes. He couldn't come in his business suit. He couldn't come in any other way but to come in his priestly vestments and priestly garments. He didn't wear them all the time, but when he went before the Lord, he went in those priestly attire. The Sabbath dinner that I was telling you that Becky and I got to attend, the rabbi and I were sitting together and um, he told me that our host, he says, you know, Adam is a priest. And I go, really? And he goes, yeah. He says, they don't do anything anymore because we don't have the temple. And so I called Adam, who is a personal friend, and I said, Adam, uh, Asher told me that you are a priest. He says, yeah, I'm of the priestly tribe. And he says, when the temple is rebuilt, and then we went back, we're just having that talk. And he realizes what happens if that was to ever happen. You see, you and I know that the sacrificial system is all done away with. So we would ask, why would there be a need for a priesthood? And that needs to pop up in our heads. Because for these folks, that were, Peter wasn't a, of a member of the priestly tribe. So when he says you're a royal priesthood, then that should say to us, what does that mean that we're a royal priesthood? It means that you're no longer an outsider because it was only the priest that could come in and make the sacrifices. Issachar couldn't. He could bring the sacrifice to the priest to make. You know, the priest is the one that had access to God. What's he saying? 
You're not only a son or a daughter of God, you have access to God Almighty Himself. Every single day. And just as the priest offered sacrifices to the Lord, you made sacrifices every day. I was talking to a college professor, and he told me, he says, one of the things that I try to get my students to do is to increase their vocabulary and lose their accents. And I said, really? Because hopefully I still have somewhat of a southern accent. And when I go home, they say I sound like you. When I come up here, they say I sound like home. So anyway, he said, yeah, he says, you get judged on your vocabulary. Matter of fact, there are some of you that are kind enough that if I use a preposition wrong, you will tell me that I used a preposition wrong. You say, does that really happen? Yeah, and I, I don't mind. There are some of you, sometimes you'll tell me if I've written something, you forgot to put a comma or a semicolon or a colon here. And you say, that doesn't bother No, it doesn't bother me. I, I'm just who I am. I'm going to keep writing the way I can and just do the best I can. But, it doesn't, but the point is, they, this professor is saying, vocabulary and accent will tell you where you're from. And in a professional world of communicators, you want to lose that accent and you want to build your vocabulary. And it's the reason that the most successful communicators, you really can't tell what part of the country they're from. And by the way, do you know where most of the successful communicators have come from in the United States? The Midwest. Because you have the least accent of any other part of the country. Isn't that cool? So if you want to be a professional communicator, you get to work on it. You've already got the accent down pat. So here's what I'm saying is there's all these ways of determining insiders and outsiders. Sometimes when I go to some of the companies that people work for in the church, I have to get a badge. I have to get an identification badge. I'm an outsider, and everybody that sees me knows that I'm an outsider. Uh, One of my funniest stories of being an outsider is I'm in the hospital so much. I've been in the hospital this week uh, praying with people, but I'm in the hospital so much that some hospitals think I work there. And so one day I was in the hospital, and I won't tell you which one. One day I'm in the hospital, and this nurse stopped me. She says, you need to come with me now. And I said, why? She says, have you had your flu shot yet? And I said, no. And so I went with her. She says, take off your jacket and roll up your sleeve. I had a suit on. I rolled up my sleeve. She gave me my shot. She says, now sign here, doctor. And I says, I'm not a doctor. I'm a local pastor. (laughs) Oh, no, she said. She said, why didn't you tell me? I said, you didn't ask. Now I got the flu shot. So I'm in good shape. So sometimes outsiders slip in under the wire, you know, and she said, please don't tell anybody. So I haven't told you where it was at or anything like that. But the point is, there's all these ways we have of getting out. There are certain handshakes that certain people do. There are all kinds of ways that we identify outsiders. But underneath it all, what I see as I read the book of 1 Peter, and I just kind of gave you some foresight of what's going to come, we're all outsiders. None of us get access into the kingdom unless we come through the blood of Jesus Christ. And I think that whole inside-outside mentality, Freud, and it's not often that Freud would agree with me, but Freud would agree with me at least on part of what I'm going to say. It goes all the way back to our Father. We've been trying to get back on the inside since we fell in the Garden of Eden because of what we talked about Sunday morning. Sin separated us from our Father, and Jesus' blood made a way for us to get back on the inside. There are all kinds of people that want on the inside. 
They get the right vocabulary. They get the right uh, uh, wardrobe. They get the right education because they're trying to get on the inside. And you and I were on the inside tonight, not because of our vocabulary and not because of our wardrobe, but because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Isn't that wonderful? I mean, that's what you're looking at here because if you read your Old Testament, you know about all the blood sacrifices that had to be made over the priest. It's part of what I think was at the bottom of racism in America because we wanted to keep certain people on the outside and not let them on the inside. And that's the reason that James wrote to the church. He says, don't let the rich have the best places or displace them when the poor come in. We're a family. That's what he's trying to get at. You're a chosen people. You're a chosen generation. There is no outside and inside. Once you've come through the blood of Jesus, we're brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's why we're to treat the elders among us as parents. We're to treat one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5. You yourselves are like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be what? A holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Well, you, you say to yourself, what are spiritual sacrifices? We're going to get to that. But then you might say, as, as I have thought, there have been plenty of times I says, Lord, I am not worthy of what you have allowed me to do or do today in my life. I, I feel that sense. It's not a poor self-esteem. It's just sometimes when I get done with the busyness and I realize what a holy people you are, what a holy book this is, what, what a holy thing it is to gather and worship. If people really understood the holiness of God, every seat would be full because they want access to the inside. And we're going to get to why that doesn't happen and why the church has always been a persecuted minority. Let me take you to an Old Testament presaging of this that will help you understand this passage in 1 Peter. We're going to go all the way back to the book of Zechariah. Some of you will remember this. If you've never read the book of Zechariah, this be all, may be all new to you. But there was, a, there was a priest standing before the Lord. And he's covered in, he's in dirty clothes and he's in excrement. It's, it's an awful sight. He's standing there and, and the devil has accused him and says he's not worthy to be a priest. He can't be a priest. And the Lord said to Satan, remember we talked about the devil Sunday morning serving, a imperfect God, serving a perfect God in an imperfect world in our battle against the devil. The devil is, is, he is the accuser of the brethren. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments and the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him and to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. You go, pastor, what in the world? A priest wasn't qualified as much as I love my friend Adam. Adam is not qualified just because of his race. A priest is qualified because of the work of grace that God does in their life. And of course, that priesthood is us today. Now, he would disagree with me on that as a, as a, as a non-Christian Jew, but 
my Jewish, Messianic Jewish friends understand what I'm saying. This is what has happened to you. Because you and I, my, my, my works of righteousness are as filthy rags. And if I was offensive by telling you that Joshua's garments were covered with human excrement, I will not tell you what the word is in Hebrew for filthy rags. Our works of righteousness are just like filthy rags. But God cleans us up. God makes us ready. God's work of grace. And I think one of the reasons we have such shallow thinking Christianity-wise is because we don't know who we are. And we don't understand what our prayer is all about. And we especially don't understand the last passage that I spent two and a half years preaching through Revelation, the day of the Lord's visitation, what all this pivotal passage means here. You and I, just like Israel, are signposts for the times that we're living in today. And we're messengers. We're a royal priesthood. This is what got Paul in so much trouble with the Jews is when Paul started bringing the Gentiles in to the temple. They weren't going to have it. He, remember, he brought Timothy in. and They're not going to have this. You can't break the law. And, and so that was another one of the reasons they wanted to kill Paul. And whether my, 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 my non-Christian Jewish friends understand this or not, you and I, we're a royal priesthood today. We're not of the tribe of Levi, but we are the sons and daughters of the Most High God. We are the sons and daughters of the Most High God. Now, Again, lest you just take that for granted because if you take what I just said and you go, oh, cool, I'm a priest. Let me read you this next passage from the book of Psalms because and, and I'm really just skimming this tonight. Who may worship in your sanctuary, Lord? Who may enter your presence on your holy hill? Those who lead blameless lives and do what is right, speaking the truth from sincere hearts, those who refuse to gossip or harm their neighbors or speak evil of their friends. Those who despise flagrant sinners and honor the faithful followers of the Lord and keep their promises even when it hurts. Those who lend money without charging interest and who cannot be bribed to lie about the innocent. Such, pe such people will stand firm forever. <laughs> I remember the first time I read that psalm. That means that I really read it. I was sitting on the grass at Southeastern College in Lakeland, Florida, underneath a tree, and I read that and I thought, there's no one that could stand in the presence of the Lord. Who hasn't lied? Who hasn't gossiped? Go read the Beatitude. There's no one. No one but the high priest, Jesus Christ who entered into the presence of the Father, shedding His blood on the throne seat of mercy, as Hebrews, the book of Hebrews makes very clear. And by shedding His blood, we come through the blood, according to Hebrews, boldly to the throne of grace that we may find help in time of need. I think you ought to give the Lord a hand of praise for that tonight. That's why we have access. Who could do it but Jesus? Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf, he wrote these words, and he was one of our 
Our Protestant Reformation heroes took in at his own expense all kinds of refugees that were being hunted by the government and by the Roman Catholic Church. But he wrote these beautiful words, Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are my glorious dress. Midst flaming worlds and these arrayed with joy shall I lift up my head. What's he saying? He's saying, despite the persecution, despite the death, my sins have been washed away by the blood of Jesus. That's why I have joy. I used to come home before Becky could start traveling with me from some of the third world countries that I went to. And I'd say, Becky, I don't understand. How can those folks be so joyful and American Christians not experience the joy? How can they have so little of this world's goods and yet still be so happy? Because many of them had been delivered out of occultism, demonism, and so many other things. And though they didn't have the educational opportunities or the material opportunities afforded to them that you and I had, the fact that they knew that they were clean in Christ, the joy they had was incredibly glorious. I know you're going to get tired of hearing me say this, but... Sometimes when I'm overseas in those churches and I watch the way people worship, I go, Lord, I want to know you this way. I don't want it here. I want it here. Lord, I need you to just do it deeper and deeper in my life than ever before. Second thing I want you to see is because of the blood of Jesus, priests are holy. That's pretty. I don't know whose it is, but that's a pretty song. Priests are holy. You are a holy priesthood. Now, I want you to think about that for just a moment because what's he saying? We know the priests, they were a holy tribe. They were, remember when I illustrated holiness, how you separate something when we got started? Levi was set aside. He was set apart. That's where the ordained ministry, set apart for ministry. It comes out of all of that same teaching we have. But here's two things I want you to see. The priesthood were responsible for praise and worship, and they were responsible for sacrifices. So there's two things I want you to see from this, and I'll be brief with it. If you're going to be a priest, you've got to have a praising spirit and not an irritable spirit. You've got to have a praising spirit and not an irritable spirit. I wrote the word grouchy down. I wrote the word cantankerous down. But since I was decided I needed to build my vocabulary a little bit, I went to synonyms.com. And I found this word irritable, and I says, I like that word right there. (laughs) Not an irritable spirit. In other words, the priests are constantly offering up praise to the Lord. They're singing to the Lord. They're making music unto the Lord. They're, They're giving God the glory. They're encouraging the congregation to give God thanks. It's something about our lives Rather than being that grouch, rather than being that grump, rather than being that fuss budget, rather than being that whiny hiney, we come in with a praising spirit and just something about our presence in the classroom or on the job. People know there's the joy of the Lord that's our strength. And I'm going to tell you something. Sometimes I think people's problems could be solved just by stopping going over and over their same problems with God and just lifting up their hands and saying, Lord, I don't know how, but I give you thanks. I'm safe in your hands. You're going to pull me through this. Amen? And we give Him praise. But priesthood also, they were responsible for the sacrifices when people sin. So I wrote they've got to be 
have a repenting spirit and not a defensive spirit. A repenting spirit and not a defensive spirit. Do you know how I know when I'm not wanting to confess my sins? I'm defending myself. You know how I know when I need to say I'm sorry to Becky? is when I say, well, Becky, but. Becky, I wouldn't have if you hadn't have. That's getting real defensive. Every woman was just nodding her head at me just now. But it's true for you too, ladies. You know, when you, you brought to the priest, you said, I have sinned. And you didn't, you didn't bring it just so you could have a sacrifice and go back and do the same thing over again. You wanted to repent. You wanted to turn around. You, you didn't want to be defensive. You didn't want to make excuses for you. You just wanted the forgiveness of God because when you had the forgiveness of God, you could have a right relationship with the highest one in the universe and you could have a right relationship with everyone else. Whether they wanted to get, and Paul will, Peter will show us that. Isn't it interesting how much we say Paul as preachers that Paul keeps coming out when we know we mean Peter? But he, as, as we look at some of these difficult relationships, he's going to show us. And you go, well, pastor, that's not so hard. Don't be a dummy. <laughs> the spirit is willing, but the flesh is. Who said that? Jesus. Some of you are like, who said that? Jesus said that. That word flesh is sarks. It's, it's not this body. It's our self-will. I hate to lose a game. I'm playing a game with my grandsons and I was losing. And I found out I really didn't like losing even to my eight-year-old and five-year-old grandson. Papa didn't want to lose. And I lost. I'm going, we won, we won. I'm, yeah, you won. Good job. I didn't mean it inside. <laughs> you know, it's that defensive spirit. Rachel told me, Christopher's wife, Rachel told me recently, she says, Pop, you're just, she said, Dad, you're just not any good at tape board games. I need a little more recreation in my life, I think. But I, you know the right thing to do. Becky, I am so sorry. But the thing that feels good is, Becky, if you had just, do you see what I'm saying? And a lot of times, if we're not careful, we'll come to God just wanting to say, forgive me, but not change. And that's not, that's a presumptuous prayer. But Lord, forgive me and help me to change because my flesh is so weak. Third thing that priests do is they offer spiritual sacrifices. Now, that's different than what I just told you. So let me kind of walk you through that. Priests offer spiritual sacrifices. And I'm almost out of time, so I've got to really kick it up a notch here. Therefore, let us offer through Christ a continual sacrifice of praise to God, proclaiming our allegiance to His name, and don't forget to do good and to share with those in need. These are the sacrifices that please God. Now, we don't bring animals, but let's look at this. What is a continual sacrifice? Well, proclaiming allegiance or worshiping Him, doing good, Sharing with people in need, these are the sacrifices that please God. So when I read that, when I read that, priests are advocates. We intercede for one another. 
I hope that you know when Pastor Corey tells you on Sunday mornings, and he's maybe for you who are here all the time, you hear it and you don't hear it, but we pray for you every day. We do. We take those needs and we pray over them. We bring them Saturday nights, the ones that are said that can be public. We pray over those. Those that stood up saying that they were under spiritual attack Sunday morning in that second service, you were with us. We had a tremendous move of the Holy Spirit at the end of the service, and all across this building, people were standing in need of, of God to do something in their life. And, and we don't ask people to often stand. And they lifted their hands and just in, in waiting upon the Lord. We pray about those things. It's, it's how we, we pray for them, expecting God to answer our prayers. But we're advocates, and as well as we don't just say, God bless you, I hope you get something to eat. We provide a meal. We, we try to help people. You see what I'm saying? We're, we're advocates. We want to help them. Now, the problem I have with some ministries is they want to feed people but not give them the gospel. Why can't we do both? Give them the gospel and give them bread to eat. Give them a gospel and give them shelter. Give them the gospel and heal them. Well, they say, well, they, they won't come if we give them the gospel. Then they're not hurting yet. Okay? You give people the gospel... You can change their life when they're, thank you, then they're completely changed and they find themselves not in the same sort of need that they were in anymore. Does that make sense? So to advocate is not just to trust in what the arm of the flesh can do. We need to be interceding because the day of visitation is coming. And that's where every man, believer or unbeliever, even the unbelievers are going to go, and this is part of that pivot. Peter's going to show us this in this epistle. That even those that go, we mocked you, we treated you bad when you were our slaves because you became a Christian, we took you out of the inner circles of society when you became a Christian, now we see that you were right on this day of visitation when Jesus Christ returns. He is Lord of all. And too late did I decide to confess that Christ is Lord. But as we looked at in the book of Revelation, on that day, that final day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, both in heaven and upon the earth, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So this ministry of priesthood, this is one that stands out to me most here. And priests also worship, and, and I need to keep moving because I want to walk you through the, the growth work. Now, our mission statement for Woodland came right out of these principles. Our mission statement for Woodland came right out of these principles. By the way, worship is not just singing songs here. Worship is us doing those things all during the week. Advocating, interceding for others, serving others, helping others, doing what God has called us to do. We'll, we've talked about that before, but look at this. Our mission statement, celebrate God's love by persuading people to become passionate followers of Jesus Christ. Let me walk you back through that just real quickly here celebrate his worship not just the songs we sing but how we live our lives a lifestyle of worship we celebrate what the love of God that God so loved his son that he sent Jesus into this world to save us from our sins if we would just believe upon him we celebrate that we we celebrate that we have access to God through Christ we celebrate that our sins have been washed away through the blood of Jesus that's what worship is and how do we do that by persuading, which is evangelism. What is persuading and what is the evangel? It's good news. 
You are lost. In, you know something's wrong with your life. You've been trying it maybe through, through transcendental meditation or through this religion or that religion or trying to fill that void with education or money and yet things aren't working out for you still. You know something. It's sin. And sin is why God sent His Son into this world. God so loved the world. All have sinned. All, it's, it's building that relationship with people where they will let us tell them them things. We're not pulling back the trigger and pow, shooting our little gospel six shooter and say, well, I told them the gospel. People don't listen until they know you care about them and you build relationship with them. But we persuade people to become that sanctification. Becoming. Every single day we're becoming a little bit more like Jesus. It's the reason that as a spirit-filled church, we don't believe in, quote, a second definite work of grace where you come to the altar and get sanctified. We see where the Bible teaches every single day that the Holy Spirit is sanctifying us and making us a little more like Christ. So we're not only interceding for others, we're not only offering sacrifices for others, we're coming every day saying, Lord, I need you. Forgive me of my sins. And help me to live a little more, love a little more, serve a little more like Jesus today. To become passionate followers of Jesus. Well, that's discipleship. So you've got your D for discipleship. You've got your R for reaching lost people. You've got your E for establishing relationships. You've got your A for affirming spiritual gifts. And you've got your M for magnifying God or worship. That's what we call the dream at Woodland. Isn't that cool? And I want you all to know that so you can just... Spit it out there just like that. Well, don't spit, but you know what I mean. In a book I'd recommend to you, let me read you two quotes. Celebration of Discipline. It was written in the 80s. And um, this is one of the few books that I tell people helped change my life. It's, it's a, been a life-changing book in my, in my life. As uh, a matter of fact, we've had some folks use it as a Bible study here at the church before. Richard Foster wrote, and by the way, he's a Quaker. And so he's got an interesting way of writing. And I tell everybody that when they read it. And Quakers, as you know, are, are pacifists. But so there are some things you kind of have to, if you get a copy of the book and read it, you kind of have to just weigh it out with the scriptures. And, um, but I, I have no hesitation recommending this book. It's a great book. Superficiality is the curse of our age. The doctrine of instant satisfaction is a primary spiritual problem. The desperate need today is not for a greater number of intelligent people or gifted people, but for deep people. Is that in your outline? Is that quote in your outline? If it should be on the app later. But if it's not, I would underline that deep people. What does he mean? People who think. People who think deeply. That's what he means by saying the difference between shallowness and superficiality. But then he makes another quote that I've never used as a leadership quote, but I decided today when looking it up, I thought this is a great leadership quote. Hurry is not of the devil, it is the devil. The caps are his, not mine. And we know there is a real Satan. I talked about that Sunday, but hurry is not of the devil, it is the devil. You can't just hurry through life. You've got to take time to be holy. Well, how do I apply this, all of this, well, I think every statement so far has been a statement of application, but let me just tell you, number one, be a participating member of our congregation. If I was preaching this at First Baptist, I would say at First Baptist, or if I was preaching this at First Assembly, I'd say at First Assembly. But be a participating member. Don't just be a pew warmer. Discover what your ministry is. Discover a place of service. 
Let me go back to the couple. We were having a wonderful couple last night. And I said, look, as long as you come to Woodland and you just attend, we'll give you everything for free. But if you become a member of this church, you're telling me, number one, you're going to tithe. You're telling me, number two, you're going to you're going to find a small group and become a part of that small group. You're telling me, number three, you're going to discover your spiritual gift and you're going to serve in ministry. It may not be necessarily here at Woodland. It may be somewhere else in our community. You're telling me you're going to pray for us. You're telling me you're going to be available. And I just went through the things. And I go, most people are just not used to hearing, but that's what membership matters. Do you understand? That was the, what I just, look at me. Please don't miss this. That was the average expectation of every believer in the body of Christ. Because they were being persecuted. What I just shared with you, that's what the New Testament shows us that Christians do. They don't just warm a pew, but they become a participating member. Be a participating member of a connections group. If you're not in a small group, you need a small group. Andrew said to me last week, Dad, we finally found a small group here and they've made their move to North Carolina. He said, it's so wonderful, Dad. We, and he was just telling me about the group. On Tuesday, on, today's Wednesday, Tuesday I called Christopher just to check up with Christopher. He says, Dad, our small group has been so wonderful. I'm so glad that our kids didn't move away from Woodland and forget about small groups, but they understand the joy of being and participating in a small group. And so be a part of a smaller group of people who know you and love you. And what happens in a small group stays in a small group. Amen? I'm telling you, there are things that I have been able to visit in some of your small groups. They don't even go in my journal because what happens in the small group stays in the small group. I have an unfortunate thing I don't forget very much, but sometimes I'll think of something. I'll go back and look in my journal if I, about your small group. And if it happened in your small group, I just don't use it as an illustration. <laughs> Anything else is free game. <laughs> Number three, be a person with a personal devotional life. Have a personal devotional life. And by devotional life, I mean you want to learn to do more than be pietistic. This is what some people's idea of a personal devotional life is. They read their Bibles, they pray. They go to their church. They love their family. But if you're personally devoted to Christ, you want to share the good news of Jesus Christ and you want to serve others. Becky, come on up. In the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and have it straight away. When I finish my devotions in the morning, most of the time I share a Bible verse on Facebook, maybe with just a little thought. Usually I try to make it an applicational thought. But what happens after I've had my devotion, it's not that I want to preach. I just think of all kinds of people who could use what the Lord has just blessed me with. I think this one could use that. So sometimes I'll send a text message to an individual. I'll call somebody during the day and I'll say, hey, I was reading this this morning. I sent one to my brother-in-law the other day. He texted right back. He says, thank you so much. I love you, Dennis. I needed that very verse of Scripture. A few minutes, Kim sent me a text. Dennis, thank you so much. You never know when the Holy Spirit prompts you 
That's a part of your devotional life. And you share. How can we not share? We're just hungry people sharing with other hungry people, aren't we? And don't worry about whether it, quote, works. I don't worry about anything, quote, working. I used to. The Holy Spirit is the one that does that. As a young preacher, I thought I had to get them to the altar. I had to get them saved. I had to get them filled with the Holy Spirit. And even though I took a whole class in pneumatology, which is the study of the Holy Spirit, it didn't register until one day in my personal devotions. And when He comes, and He has come already, the Holy Spirit, He will convict the world of its sin and of God's righteousness and of the coming judgment. The world's sin is that it refuses to believe in me. Righteousness is available because I go to the Father and you will see me no more. Judgment will come because the ruler of this world, Satan, has already been judged. I went, oh, Jesus, all I got to do is share. All I got to do is be the priest. The Holy Spirit will do the rest. But he needs you. He wants you to share with others and he will convict and guide. And then finally, live in tune with the Spirit. Do you know what I mean when I say that? Can I, can I close it or do I need to? If I tune in my radio, and I guess we don't do that much anymore, but if I tune in my radio in the old days, I had to get it just right on the dial. Mark gets all the musicians up here and they tune in. Mark, are you in this room? There you are. Last night, somebody, that couple last night said, now, and they described you, says, is he like the worship pastor? And Becky and I told him, he's our creative arts pastor. They says, we kind of guessed that he was the guy in charge up there. And I said, how did you guess? And so they were describing what he did. He was tuning everybody up, the instruments, the vocalist. He says, even though he's, he's not always up front, He said, we could tell he's leading. Mark, that's a great compliment on you. You're producing other leaders and you're getting leaders in tune and instrumentalists. And and I don't, I'll say this anywhere. Artists aren't always the easiest people to work with. And Mark pulls them all together and there's no ego on the stage. They're just people who want to lift their hands and worship the Lord and want you to worship with them. And when we come together, Lift your hands in the sanctuary. You know what will make lifting your hands easier in the sanctuary is lifting your hands by your bed at night before you go to bed. Lifting your hands in the morning because if we lift our hands to the Lord in the privacy of our homes and prayer closets, we can't wait to lift them with one another in the presence of God. You want to know why? Because we're a royal priesthood. We're children of the King. Our Father is God. And we've been called to offer these sacrifices. I hope that blessed you tonight. I hope it encouraged you and helped you. Would you stand with me? Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together. Lord Jesus, I love you so very much. And I thank you for these deep, deep truths from the book of 1 Peter. I thank you, Lord, for what you've given us the privilege of being. And just as... Adam and Asher were sharing with me the other night there's a secret sign for the priesthood among the Jews there's not a secret sign for us Lord we want to go as public with it as we can we've been washed again in the blood of Jesus 
And because of that, by our love for you and one another, will all people know that we are passionate followers of Christ. For it's in your name I pray. And everybody said, amen. God bless you. I love you. Have a great night.